listening to Books Are My People, a bi-weekly podcast for book lovers with book news, book recommendations, and ruminations on living a literary life in Los Angeles. This is episode 30. So we are back from our trip to Telluride. We had an amazing time in Colorado. We spent the week outdoors paddleboarding and kayaking and hiking. We had some deer that visited us each night and we saw herds of elk, which I'd never seen before, and I saw my very first wolves out in the wild, which was so exciting. It has been stinking hot here. My phone told me it was 100 degrees the other day in LA, and it's also fire season, which is so scary that that is an official season here now, Um, and it's a long season. You'd think with everything else being canceled, we could somehow cancel fire season as well. My kids go back to school today, two weeks early this year, and everyone's doing their best with online school, but it's all just so weird and dystopic, and it makes me sad when I think about all the time that has been taken away from them, connecting with friends and getting to have new experiences. So I'm just curious, when do you all think we are going back to school? I, In person, I mean. I know each state is different, and I'm obviously talking about California, and I hesitate to share my new projection for returning to school because I really, really hope I'm wrong. But I think the pessimist that has uh, been born out of the situation is telling me like after spring break, which is like April, have I mentioned that I hope I'm wrong? Anyhow, I'm going to hurry through our bookish news today because we have a guest. Author Julie Christine Johnson is here to speak with us about writing and specifically her novel, The Crows of Bera, which I read and loved. So time for some bookish news. I'm going to start with some book-to-film news. Actually, before I get to that, in relation to -to book-to-film news, we just finished watching season two of The Umbrella Academy, which is based on a graphic novel, and I bought my kids a copy of the graphic novel, which is... I think one of the few times I've actually read the book after having seen the adaptation, but they're having fun working their way through it and finding all sorts of things that aren't in the TV adaptation. Anyhow, we love that series. If you have older kids, it's a bit violent for younger ones, but I recommend it. Hulu is developing the novel Mexican Gothic into a drama series. It's written by Silvia Moreno-Garcia, and Kelly Ripa and Mark Consuelos's production company, along with ABC Signature, will be developing it. If you want to learn more about this book, listen to episode 29 of this podcast, where I recommend this gothic horror novel. The graphic novel New Kid by Jerry Craft is being developed into a movie by Universal Pictures and LeBron James. My youngest recently read it, and it's great. The book is about a seventh grader who wants to become a famous cartoonist. Author John Boyne, who wrote The Boy in the Striped Pajamas and Ladder to the Sky, which I talked about on episode 13 of this podcast, recently published a new novel, A Traveler at the Gates of Wisdom, in July this year. The novel is a very time-travel-y story, and at one point the narration mentions how to make red dye by using the following ingredients, an octorock eyeball and the tail of the red 
lizalfos, and four hylian shrooms. So if you didn't know how to make red dye, maybe you'd believe that these are actual ingredients. But it turns out Boyne did a Google search while writing his novel and landed on what he thought were the proper ingredients to make red dye, when it turns out they were in fact monster parts from the video game The Legend of Zelda. So as an author, I know I use Google a lot for information, so it's an important reminder to continue to vet our sources. Boyne has a great sense of humor about it. He doesn't want to remove it from his novel, and he is going to add a special thank you to the game Zelda in the acknowledgments page. So today I am thrilled to have Julie Christine Johnson visiting us. She is the award-winning author of the novels In Another Life from Sourcebooks out in 2016 and The Crows of Bera published by Ashland Creek Press in 2017. She holds undergraduate degrees in French and psychology and a master's degree in international affairs. Julie leads writing workshops and seminars and offers story developmental editing and writer coaching services. And she describes herself, and I love this, as a hiker, a yogini, and a wine geek. Julie makes her home on the Olympic Peninsula of Northwest Washington State. So hello, Julie, and welcome. Jennifer, thank you so much. Hello. Thanks so much for joining us. So I'm my first question is, how has the quarantine been treating you? I am currently taking my first um, paid time off in, in over a year. And I, you know, I looked in the early days of the pandemic in March and April and in the first part of May with some kind of cognitive dissonant envy and, and, and guilt at everyone's um, jigsaw puzzle and baking moments because I, I really dove into work and, and just could, didn't feel like I could take um, any time off. So I'm taking this time off and I am nesting at home and I'm writing and gardening and and just hunkering down and, and finally having a chance to really um, kind of absorb and reflect on on what these months have been like. So before I ask you a few questions, I wanted to start by talking about your novel, The Crows of Bera. This is a beautiful lyrical novel about a woman named Annie Crow who is living in Seattle and struggling with her present marriage and also struggling to sort of reconcile her past. And when a job opportunity arises in Ireland on the remote Barra Peninsula, Annie learns that the development of a mine would encroach on the nesting ground of the red-billed chuff, which is an endangered species, an endangered bird. Uh, people in the local community come out to defend their backyard, including Daniel Savage, who's a local artist with a storied past of his own. And Annie and Daniel have a very very magnetic connection as they both work on themselves and also try to figure out how to best protect the land that they love. I don't want to give away too many details because it all unfolds so beautifully, but it's a novel where the setting really plays so much into the story and the setting is just so beautifully rendered. And I was delighted to find that it even has a bit of magical realism in there as well. So it was a beautiful book, a wonderful read, and I cannot recommend it enough. 
Oh, thank you, Jennifer. Wow. So my first question for you is, and this is in the afterword of the book, so I know the answer, but for the readers out there who haven't had a chance to look at it yet, what was your inspiration for writing this novel? Ireland itself. Um, I first traveled there in 2002 to hike the Barra Peninsula. There's a, a wonderful system of trails throughout the entire country and and I've been fortunate enough to hike several of them over the years. But the Barra was my first experience of Ireland. And um, over the years, as I became a writer, I knew that the Irish story was in me somewhere. And um, when I sat down to work on the novel, I, I knew I wanted to write something set in Ireland. And it was really over the course of of researching um, Irish legends that brought me back to the, the Hag of Barra um, and Kylock Barra and, and brought me full circle to my first experience in Ireland. Well, if you've never been to Ireland, you will feel like you have gone there after reading this book. I've, I've only ever been to Dublin and it was in the middle of winter. So the Ireland in your novel is very different than the Ireland that I saw. And I would like to go to the Ireland in your novel next time I get a chance to travel. Your novel had such a beautiful balance between well-developed characters and a compelling plot. And it's the two aspects of writing that I think are, it's just really hard to find that balance. And I'm wondering if one aspect of the novel came first. Annie came first. Once I knew my setting, I put everything aside and, and just began journaling, writing a long hand about this woman and um, discovering who she was and and what was pushing her forward and what was holding her back. And um, even in, in developing her character and deciding what her profession was, the, the plot unfolded from that. So it was truly about Annie. And then um, eventually, before I started writing the actual narrative about Daniel as well. So, so the, the plot really unfolded from these two characters stories and their their inner journeys. Great. It's always interesting to hear how writers approach their different novel writing. Um, what was the research process like for you working on this novel? I It, it unfolded really in, in kind of three parts with the discovery of um, Kyla Cabrera, which is, is the magical realism part of the novel and, and, and centers on a very ancient Celtic legend. So you'll you'll find the Kylock um, throughout different parts of Ireland and even into Scotland. Um, through that, I came upon the poetry of Leanne O'Sullivan, who is a young Irish, she's in her um, late 20s now, but she's a young Irish poet who grew up uh, coincidentally in Barra, or not coincidentally. And she, through her poetry, and she's written um, volumes of poetry about the Kylock, about this legend, and also about the mining road. Um, and mine, copper mines have been in this area for, um, for, for generations. And both those, those elements, the, the copper mine and this legend of the Hag of Barra, um, were the first parts that really opened the door for me into the plot. And then once I knew um, where I was headed, literally and figuratively, then I began kind of piecing together research about the chuff, about the endangered bird, um, and about uh, Daniel's profession, which is a, a copper artist. And I and then I left things alone, and it was deeper into revisions that I began looking at some of the corporate intrigue and 
and um, and corporate corruption and, and, and wove that in. Now that I hear you talking about it, there really are so many threads in this novel, but when you're reading it, it doesn't feel overwhelming. Like sometimes when you read a novel that has a lot going on, you just feel a little bit lost in all the threads and yours came together so organically. Thank you. It didn't feel like that. <laughs> I'm sure. <laughs> um, so you say that you are hunkering down at home and writing. Are you working on anything new now? I am. I'm working on uh, the first of a crime fiction series set in Port Townsend. So this is the first time I've written a, a, a domestic novel. And um, it's it's a modern day story of a, a woman who was a former Seattle police detective who comes back to Port Townsend, where I live, and um, gets embroiled in, in a series of disappearances of home health care workers. Well, I look forward to reading it when it comes out. But currently, listeners, if you're looking for a novel that transports you, that deals with environmental issues, and that is just beautifully rendered, please go out and buy The Crows of Baron. I will include a link in the show notes of this podcast. And now onto the books. So Julie has brought three books to share with us. So what is your first pick today? I'd love to tell you about Julia Phillips' debut, Disappearing Earth which was published in May of 2019. In Russia's Far East, the Kamchatka Peninsula knifes between the Sea of Okhotsk and the Pacific Ocean. It is a 1,250-kilometer-long blade serrated by volcanic mountains, honed razor-sharp by unrelenting cold, and a history of violent encounters between Kamchatka's indigenous people and mainland white Russians eager to plunder its vast natural resources. Julia Phillips chooses this perilous landscape as the setting for her mesmerizing debut, Disappearing Earth. The story opens on a warm summer day at the edge of a bay in the territory's only metropolis, Petropavlovsk. Sisters Alyonia and Sofia Goloskaya, 11 and 8, are left alone to play while their mother writes feel-good propaganda for a post-Soviet state newspaper. Then a man arrives in an improbably polished black sedan, and the little girls vanish. What follows is a kaleidoscopic literary thriller that tracks the year following the Golovskaya sisters' disappearance. Each chapter a shift of perspective of a Kamchatkan woman, reflecting the cultural complexities in this strange and treacherous place. Julia Phillips' writing is by turns fragile and furious, gorgeously detailed yet restrained. She has crafted both a fantastic mystery set in a nearly inaccessible, incomprehensible land and a vital examination of violence against women, a condition that knows no borders. And that's Julia Phillips, Disappearing Earth. So I've heard amazing things about that book that is definitely on my to-read list. My first pick this week is Britt Bennett's The Vanishing Half, which I have been seeing everywhere, and rightfully so, because it is fantastic. I first became a fan of her work when I read her novel, The Mothers, which was published in 2016. And I actually like, I like both of them, but I like The Vanishing Half even more. And I feel like this is the must read of the year so far. The book takes place over the course of 50 years, but it doesn't feel vast and expansive the way that some can that span that long of a time period. 
it's it's a very intimate feeling sort of book. Um, it focuses on twins, Desiree and Stella, who grow up in the fictional small town of Mallard, Louisiana. And Mallard is a town that is comprised of light-skinned black people, as Bennett writes, like a cup of coffee steadily diluted with cream. They are raised by their single mother after their father is lynched to death, and the girls have a rough time growing up in Mallard. They're always wanting to escape, and at 16, they finally manage to run away to New Orleans. But then their lives bifurcate even further when they move apart from one another. Desiree moves to Los Angeles, and Stella becomes a secretary and decides to live her life passing as a white woman. This is a novel about identity and race and about two sisters who share the exact same DNA but are living completely different lives. There are so many complex issues that this book deals with. I don't want to reveal what they all are because then that would give away some of the plot points. The book does rely on a bit of coincidence, but I was so engrossed in the novel that it didn't bother me at all. It was so beautifully written and Bennett masterfully juggles so many important issues. And again, that is The Vanishing Half by Britt Bennett. Julie, what do you have next for us? Definitely on my list. I have um, Taya Abret's Inland, which came out about a year ago last August. This is a work of historical fiction, a panoramic Western in the great tradition of Cather, McCarthy, and Portis. But Taya Abret is too skilled a writer to be confined by conventions of genre. Two stories unfold, one expanding over four decades, the other in a span of hours, until they come together in the novel's final gutting pages. Laurie, an immigrant and wanted man, hustles west from an eastern seaport where he landed from Bosnia as a boy. He attaches himself to bands of itinerants and outlaws, trying to outrun his own wanted poster. Her throat aching with thirst, Nora Lark homesteads with her husband Emmett and three sons in a little mining district between Phoenix and Flagstaff. Emmett is three days late returning with their water supply, and the morning after a heated argument with Nora, the two older Lark sons disappear in search of their father. Nora is left on the forlorn property with fragile seven-year-old Toby, stroke-addled grandma, and her husband's scatterbrained young cousin Josie, who claims to commune with the spirit world. Nora maintains a heart-running patter with her daughter, Evelyn, who died of heat stroke as an infant. Abret creates breathless tension as Lurie's and Nora's stories track toward collision. The desiccated land is haunted with ghosts, menaced by drought and starvation. And yet the cast of characters retains an enchanting humanity with Nora, tough, broken, resolute, and loving, the greatest among them. And that's Taya Abret's Inland. I am going to jump on the drought bandwagon with my next pick, which is Godshot by Chelsea Beaker. And a special thank you to Catapult for sending me a copy of this book. So at the beginning of the pandemic, if you've been listening to this podcast, you know that I was all in with the dystopian literature. But now I'm feeling a little bit oversaturated. And I think I've decided that Godshot is going to be sort of the bookend for my (laughs) pandemic um, reading time. For now, at least. I need a little break, even though I want to read Migrations by Charlotte McConaughey so badly because it got an amazing endorsement from Emily St. John Mandel. But I think I'm going to still take 
maybe 30 day break. So this book, Godshot, is about Lacey May, who is 14 years old and living in Peaches, which is a small town near Fresno, which used to be the raisin capital of the world. But now they are experiencing a drought and people are perpetually thirsty. Out of a desperation to feel hopeful, the townspeople flock to Pastor Vern, who is the town sage. And he promises that if people just listen to him, no matter what he says, and do whatever he tells them to do, the rain will return. Obviously, things like baptisms can't happen because of the lack of water, so instead they get dunked in soda. So Lacey lives with her mother, who is an alcoholic, and she is excited to eventually receive her assignment from the pastor that should be coming pretty soon. But it's shrouded in so much secrecy. Her mother, who has a hard time following the rules, gets banished from town, and Lacey is forced to move in with her grandmother, Cherry, who is an enthusiastic follower of the church. Finally, Lacey is given her assignment, which is horrific and disturbing, and I won't spoil it here, but she begins to uncover other townspeople's secrets. This book reminded me just in terms of theme of The Grace Year, um, which I think I talked about that book on episode 14. Um, Godshot is about a teenage protagonist, but it doesn't feel like a young adult novel. It feels very timely and it's pretty bleak. So you have to be in the, the right bleak mood to read this book. And again, that is Godshot by Chelsea Beaker. Julie, what's your last pick? Jennifer, several months ago, a friend of mine gave me the 660-page autobiography by Janet Frame and Angel at My Table. And I thought, when am I ever going to have time to read this? And the pandemic hit, the library shut down, and I ran out of library books. And so I had time to um, delve into my shelves, and I'm so, so very glad I did. This is Janet Frames, An Angel at My Table, the complete autobiography, and it's glorious. Raw, vulnerable, sweet, tender. Janet Frame was born just years before the Great Depression in rural New Zealand and raised in a family that barely held poverty at bay. Janet, an unattractive kid with a bristle of red hair and a mouthful of rotten teeth, preternaturally smart, shy, made it through college and was in training to become a teacher when she attempted suicide. She was sent to a mental hospital, diagnosed as a schizophrenic, and received during eight years of incarceration over 200 electroshock treatments. An Angel at My Table, originally published as three separate volumes, travels through Janet's childhood, young adulthood, and blossoming as a writer. It is surprisingly short on detail of her time at mental institutions in New Zealand, but this era informs many of her novels, and it is within fiction that Frame finds a way to release the horrors she endured. After she becomes more established as a writer, she has the emotional and financial resources to revisit her diagnosis and learn she was never schizophrenic. This causes a crisis of identity and she returns to full-time psychiatric care to learn how to care for herself and to be at one with the world. Frame's slightly befuddled, childlike writing style belies the intense self-awareness of a writer and a woman coming into her own in an era when women were just beginning to assert their voices and their power. 
This will remain one of the defining points of my pandemic experience. That strange and beautiful time I read Janet Frame's autobiography and felt closer to myself and the world as a result. And that's Janet Frame's An Angel at My Table, the complete autobiography. That sounds absolutely heartbreaking and I want to read it. (laughs) So next up for me is The Death of Vivek Oji by Akwake Amezi. Julie, what are you going to read next? I am actually um, deep into an extraordinary book called Highway of Tears, a true story of racism, indifference, and the pursuit of justice for missing and murdered Indigenous women and girls by Jessica McDermott. Um, I'm obviously into light summer reading these days, (laughs) but but it's truly, it's unputdownable. It's extraordinary. Well, it's been a pleasure having you here. Thank you so much for visiting. Thank you, Jennifer. This has been so great. All of the books that we've discussed today, including all of Julie's novels, can be found in the show notes section of the podcast or by visiting my Books Are My People store at bookshop.org. I'll be back in 14 days, and I hope you all have a wonderfully bookish week. Bye.